folks, and welcome or welcome back to NTI's Japan Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Ziv Nakajima, again, and this podcast was brought to you, among others, by Emil Gorgis, a Tokyo real estate agent who specializes in serving international or mixed nationality families looking for the perfect family home. So Emil's an Australian. He's been living here in Japan for the past two decades, eight years of which he's been actively buying, selling, and managing real estate properties in the city on behalf of his own family and a great many happy clients. And he also acts as a mortgage broker on behalf of his clients. So his company has a dedicated loan officer in many of the Japanese mega banks. And if you're a regular listener, you probably already know him from our JREP, the Japan Real Estate Experts panel sessions. So you're probably already aware that the man is an absolute fountain of wisdom on all things related to real estate in Japan. And in particular to family homes, the greater Tokyo metropolitan area and mortgages. And most importantly, he's incredibly generous with his time and advice, which he's more than happy to provide at no cost or commitment to anyone asking. So if you've been thinking about buying your home in Tokyo, but you've been sitting on the fence for a while, or if you just want to have a chat in English with a real expert, drop him a line on emil.gorgis, that's E-M-I-L dot G-O-R-G double E S Emil dot Gorgies at Tokyo Realty dot JP. Hit him up today and start exploring your options. All right. So for today's episode, uh, this is an audio recording of a conversation that I've had recently with an Australian gentleman. He's married to a Japanese national, and we had a really long deep dive into the nitty gritty aspects of property investment here in Japan. We talk about how to get an investment loan or a home loan, how the borrowing capacity and loan criteria is calculated, the ability or inability rather to draw on equity here. And then we branch into reselling properties. So do you do it after a shorter or longer holding period? The difference in investment mentality and general property ownership mentality between the Japanese and the non-Japanese, why and how to sell your investment property, how these properties are priced, and also a whole lot about portfolio structuring, diversification across the country, across different countries, across continents, attractive locations to purchase in. And then we go um, off the reservoir, so to speak, and we dive into some more niche topics like parking lot investments, buildings versus units, uh, abenomics, and more current economic trends, including salaries and rent hikes, commercial residential, the difference between the two, the cost of taxes and accountants in Japan. And we even touch on migration from the city to suburban and rural areas and other pandemic related trends. So really good, deep conversation, both micro and macro. Trust you'll enjoy it. I'll see you again on the other side. Yep, go for it. So I haven't got your email in front of me. I closed out of Outlook to avoid those bloops. So can you give me a brief, um, brief intro on what you're looking for again? Uh, yes, so uh, obviously I'm, I'm Australian and my wife is Japanese, uh, she's there. I'm here at the moment, hopefully I'm coming over uh, next month, fingers crossed. But yeah, I, I obviously uh, have the Australian mentality which I, you know, own, owning property is important and see the, the advantages of it. So I'm, I'm wanting to sort of do that in Japan. Uh, I'm meeting with the, I guess, the classic Japanese mindset that no, you don't own a property, you just rent because of all of the, the costs involved and all oh, you have to repair, etc. Et Investment is dangerous and scary, yeah. 
Investment is very dangerous and scary, yes. Yeah. Uh, but I, I'm looking to sort of build a moderate property portfolio with sort of like a, over a 10-year uh, vesting period. Um, that's sort of the broad strokes. Um, on a sort of side note, I'm also interested in, in parking lots. Now, I have a, uh, a very good uh, family friend, Japanese family friend. They're based in Yokohama, and they basically live off the income from a couple of parking lots that they own sort of downtown Yokohama. So uh, I know that's an option. You've discussed that on one of your podcast episodes. Yep. And I guess uh, specifically today, what I'm really interested in is is financing. Um, I, I've listened extensively and, and, and read your your articles that you provided. So I'm very aware of uh, you know, the difficulty of, of getting loans and not taking into account foreign equity, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Or foreign uh, income, unfortunately. Or for, or foreign income. Yeah. Um, so. Thinking that if we maybe went into the weeds a little bit, and were there any sort of creative strategies um, of of financing sort of purchases that you may be aware of? For example, um, having a, a, a foreign bank uh, and getting financing through them. That that's doable, but it's not going to be in most cases that I'm aware of. It's not going to be a property loan, so it's going to be like a business credit line or a personal loan, yes. and the um, the terms are just not not really that attractive um, when you get those. Yeah. No. The only other option would be for. Um, can I ask about your employment status? Are you employed? Are you a business owner? What do you do? Yeah. So I, I'm. Uh, 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 have have my own own business, sort of self self employed. Yep. I I actually uh, one of my businesses was a Japanese uh, travel business. Obviously, that's been decimated thanks yeah. to uh, that current situation we all keep hearing about daily. Uh, but yeah, I've I've sort of uh, battened down the hatches a bit, and I've I've done quite well out of the property market here locally and in Australia. I own property in Brisbane, which has just seen unbelievable growth. I actually made fifty percent return in three years, so it's amazing. Uh, it's a, it's a, it's amazing, and it's crazy, and it's it's actually become unaffordable uh, in the major um, cities in Australia. So you know, if I I can use use that money to uh, come across to Japan and and sort of start build, building building something substantial there that, that's what I'm very very interested in yeah well financing wise um, I mean the only case that I know of where a person actually got a straight-out property loan from a foreign lender to invest in Japan so cross-border um, mm -hmm. was somebody whose family had substantial wealth and have been banking with that same bank for many years and that's the sort of thing you get in Europe and Singapore not that much in Australia no. Um, so family offices, obviously large investment corporations and so forth. For normal individuals who don't have extensive private banking connections, that's usually not an option. So if we put that aside for a moment and focus on Japanese lenders, um, for them to lend to you, you would need to have an income history um, in Japan for at least 
I mean, the, the official minimum is a year, but I'd say probably better to go off three, four years. And it has to be stable income. So if it's a salary, it has to be a stable salary. And if you're a business owner, it has to, the business has to be paying you a taxable salary or you need to be drawing a taxable income from the business. Mm -hmm. um, and again, over a period of a few years and uh, relatively stable, so no big fluctuations. I mean, if it keeps going up, it's great. But if it goes up and down, that's going to be an issue for them. Yes. Um, and you would need to either have residency, long-term residency, so beyond a spouse visa or a working visa, mm -hmm. um, or have a Japanese resident as a co-signatory to the loan. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. The only other options, I mean, there are there are a couple of banks that would lend to non-resident foreigners or somebody who they classify as a non-resident, but they would only be lending for very what they perceive as very safe and stable investments. So central Tokyo properties that are purely residential properties for long-term leases. No short-term stays, definitely not parking lots or any sort of business venture. Um, and those are just, well, A, they're very expensive. So for the price of the deposit that you need to put in, which is going to be 30%, 40%, um, you could already purchase a couple of properties just straight out in cash. Yeah. Um, because Central Tokyo properties or even Central Osaka, which they sometimes branch out to, um, tend to be very expensive. And yields are dismally low. I mean, they're not bad cash on cash if you factor in how much you're actually putting in out of pocket. Um, but compared to what you can get in other parts of the country or, you know, different profile of property. Um, and the other thing is that they necessitate that they, for the life term of the loan, they force you to work with their designated property managers just to make sure that you're not doing any monkey business and renting it out short term, which is against the loan terms, which just sort of creates a situation where as if, for some reason you're not happy with that property manager there's nothing that you or us can do about it you have to keep working either with them or maybe they've got one or two alternative companies that they can put in place but you don't have the freedom of choice on the property and you don't have the freedom of choice on usage and you don't have the freedom of choice on management um, so considering all of these terms we don't actually have any clients who wanted to go for that uh, I keep referring them to them and they keep having the conversation with the banks, but um, no, no one's pulling the trigger because, I, I mean, it's just, it's horrible terms, right? Yeah. And the interest yeah. also is going to be very different. So the interest for a non-resident loan is somewhere between two and a half to three and a half, maybe four percent. Whereas if you're borrowing normally as a resident from a normal Japanese lender, um, you get for investment maybe one and a half maybe two percent if, if they you know your high risk profile for them and mm -hmm. um, so it could come up to almost double the interest rate which uh, does make a difference yep mm -hmm. uh, so yeah so basically as an example I you know I, I could come I think you know you've mentioned in your podcast before come with you know Three to four hundred thousand US dollars equivalent, and yeah. and uh, yeah, buy sort of five to ten potentially uh, properties diversified across Japan. If you want to spread them out, you could also buy one small building, 
um, yes. which gives you more capital growth potential and more flexibility. And because the whole structure is yours, you can basically do almost everything you want with it under local zoning regulations. But basically, you can definitely rent rooms out by the month as opposed to by the year or two years. Um, if down the track you wanted to tear down walls, turn some of the units into bigger units, which is very doable with a wooden structure, which is most of the smaller buildings in Japan. Mm. Um, you'd have the freedom to do that, even you know, tear the whole thing down and make it a parking lot or logistics facility or whatever you want. Um, obviously, you're not going to be able to do that with individual units. No, no. Um, well, I, yeah, I guess I, I think I probably already know the answer to this question, but you know, uh, it would be more advantageous for you know, my personal cash flow as if I, I came with half that amount, you know, one fifty, two hundred thousand US, and then try to, you know, get a loan for the rest, and then uh, sort of gear it in a way that I, I can. You know, pay that off fairly quickly just from the rental income. Get a loan from Australia, I mean. Well, Japan obviously would be better because uh, the, the, the rates, but that that's the difficulty. And as you've mentioned before, uh, a Japanese national is generally lent is it seven times the annual salary. That's for a home loan. Investment loans might be a bit different. They might be less, I think, yeah. Yeah, they might be less, and you definitely need to put in a, a lot higher of uh, uh, cash participation. For home loans, they give you 100 or 105% to include purchase costs. Um, with investment loans, it's going to be 50 to 60% usually. Maybe okay. 70% if you're lucky. So you're going to be 30 to 50% in cash anyway. And again, that's not going to be an option until you've established an income stream in Japan and taxable income for a good few years right so for example when you set up uh, a business depending on what sort of business you're going to be setting up obviously you're going to be wanting to carry your setup costs um, or if you're purchasing property you want to carry your purchase costs forward and claim them as losses deductions for the first few years tax wise but if you do that you don't have taxable income so again the banks are not counting those years so there's a there's a very delicate balance I mean, we can work on that with an accountant but um I wouldn't. Uh, what's going? What's going to be your employment or, or business situation once you do relocate to Japan? What's the plan there? Not a hundred percent sure, uh, because of the current environment. I, I would like to uh, keep the the tourism sort of thing happening in in some state, uh, but you know that's become inherently risky based on uh, you know recent events. So not not one hundred percent sure, but, but you're setting up a business. You're not planning to be employed here. Uh, setting up a business that's that's sort of the goal, yes. Um, rather than than being employed, uh, so my wife is employed uh, in Japan. It's a Japanese company. So and she's not going to be taking out the loan or co-signing the loan um, based on the uh, on the uh, mentality that you mentioned there. Uh, I, I'm sure if it, it, it's just as I said, yeah, it's the mentality. You know, this like it's not not front of their mind. It's you know, it's too risky. They, it's just something they're not even thinking about. But I think if you know, you have an open mind and look at the numbers and and the possibilities. A lot of that fear you know, can be allayed, and, and uh, so maybe yeah, I, basically got to got to come armed with all of the, the right information and. Uh, 
Okay, so, so let's take the most likely scenario is that you're going to be setting up some sort of business here in Japan. Um, just going on business fundamentals, usually um, an income that would be considered, you know, a reasonable taxable income would probably take about two years to establish, I'm guessing. Yes. Um, so you're looking at maybe qualifying about five years down the track. And that's assuming that your residency situation um, is somehow sorted. So I know that for home loans, um, some of the lenders do consider people who are on the route to permanent residency as opposed to people who are already there. Um, but again, that's going to be a 60, 40, 60 kind of situation. They're not going to give you 100% if you're not a permanent resident. Mm -hmm. um, and also, I don't think many of them would consider investment loans. So you would also have to take care of your residency situation. I mean, you can be on a spouse visa or a business manager visa indefinitely, but that's probably not going to be good enough for the banks. They'll want you to be on a longer term visa, permanent resident or long term uh, resident. There's a few visas in that category. Mm -hmm. And that depending on, I can put you in touch with an immigration lawyer and he can try to see if you qualify for anything that'll be on a faster track. But normally, you'd need to, again, generate a substantial enough income for the immigration department to consider uh, cutting the period, which is normally 10 years, uh, cutting it down to uh, four or five or six years or whatever. Yes. Yeah, no, it's... Uh, I see that they have amended the rules recently for the permanent residency. Um, it's like a 100-point system now. Obviously, you've got a Japanese spouse that gets you a long, a long way there, and then... Um, having maybe a, a business uh, business manager visa or degrees in a certain... Look, income areas. income always helps. High taxable okay. income is always uh, the fastest track. Um, but again, from a tax perspective, you probably don't want to declare a high taxable income if you can avoid it for as long as you can. So, yeah. Yeah, it's... A uh... bit of a catch-22 there, yeah. Bit, bit of a catch-22, that's what I was looking for. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it doesn't matter if I, I, I bring the you know, the cash and deposit in a, in a Japanese bank, it just doesn't matter, That's they're not interested in, in that. No, they don't care about cash deposits, they don't care about <coughs> assets in other countries, not even in Japan. Uh, all they care about mm -hmm. is a stable income stream and the history of that, and, uh, and residency status. Unfortunately, so assuming that that's all going to maybe become an option, let's call it five years plus down the track. Um, the question is if you want to wait until then or if you want to meanwhile park your cash somewhere that's actually generating income and then five years down the track, you can recycle, sell the property, buy a new one with a loan. Um, or by that time, you might have accrued enough to, to just expand to be able to pay half of the uh, half of the cost on your own and, and so forth. Well, and I, I think that brings back to the sort of difference in Australian-Japanese mentality. So so here, you know, we, we buy, buy a house. We don't think, oh, I'm going to live in this for the next 30 years and pay off the mortgage. Like, I, I guess some people do. But, you know, we might hold it for two, three years. You know, we've got good capital growth. We sell it. We move somewhere else. We start another job somewhere else. So two, yeah. two caveats there from the Japanese perspective. The first off is mm -hmm. that if you sell within the first five years, there's double capital gains tax. Mm -hmm. 
and the second is um, there's probably not going to be that much capital gains in any case, right? Uh, Japan being Japan, unless you're buying in uh, super central locations, I'd say at the moment maybe central Tokyo, central Osaka, central Fukuoka would be about it. Mm -hmm. um, maybe places that are close enough to enjoy the same fundamentals, so Kawasaki, Kobe, um, maybe central Yokohama, although we haven't seen huge um, price jumps there in the last five, six years. Um, but they're close enough to Tokyo to enjoy yeah. the similar fundamentals. Mm -hmm. um, but you would assume that it's not going to be... I mean, the flipping game is... It's done here by companies that specialize in that. So they buy cheap, um, renovate cheaply, and then sell at a slight profit. But it's not due to capital gains. It's just due to the way that they practice it. Mm -hmm. um, flipping for capital gains profit is not really a strategy that I would bank on here. It's great if there are capital gains, but I definitely wouldn't count on it happening. Yes, yeah, oh, I, I, I understand all that, um, but I guess in the Japanese situation, uh, well, in my particular situation, the other half is worried, you know, if they sort of say, buy, buy in Osaka or Kyoto or somewhere, and we're locked thinking that, oh, we're locked there, we have to stay there for 30 years until, you know, the, the, the loan finishes, whereas I'm saying, well, no, we can still, you know, stay there for five years or whatever time and then we sell that and then we, we move on like we, we're not locked in into that property uh, are you talking like, about your own home now or the investment property uh either either okay yeah well so, with the with the investment i mean a home loan is a home loan depend i mean a, um owner occupied property is an owner occupied property in the sense that um if you're comfortable living in that location you want to stay you stay and if you know your, your life requirements change then you move on with investment properties, I can tell you that most of our clients are strictly buy and hold. And the only reason they would be selling is, um, A, if they, for some reason, urgently need money elsewhere. And most of them are pretty savvy investors, so not many of them are in that spot. And the other, um, the other reason would be if the building is getting slightly older, maintenance costs are rising to a point where the yield is just not too, not too attractive anymore. Um, and the same goes, if you own individual units, then building fee, monthly building fees will go up to cover for maintenance. And if you own the entire building, then your out-of-pocket maintenance costs will get higher. So it's kind of the same thing. Um, at that point, then yes, they would sell them and just invest that money in something a little bit younger. And the time frame for that is usually somewhere between 7 to 10 years, I'd say. Yes. And look, some of them are, they've gotten, you know, if they've gotten very good results from the property, they're just happy to ride it till it drops and just hang on to it until it's um, at the point where it needs to be torn down. We haven't been there yet with any customer, um, but there are some that just keep on holding to them even as they get older and older. Um, but most of them, I mean, we would send out an advisory, look, your property is reaching the point where we think it might be a good idea to try and sell it now before costs get too high or the price falls off a cliff and then they just make a decision based on that. Mm. Well, and I, as you mentioned in, in one of your episodes, it's uh, far better just basically parking your cash in Japanese property and getting even a 3% return. It's better than any bank. At the yeah. Moment, so. yeah, and if the location is very attractive, then 
Japanese investors will always take it off your hands because they're not as concerned about yields. Um, one, because they don't need to consider any exchange rate fluctuations and so forth. And B, because again, mentality wise, even the ones who are investing in Japan, it's very rare that they actually are aware of the fact that they could invest elsewhere and get higher returns. Um, they're just very insular in that sense. So there's always, I mean, we would always be able to sell a property that our customers wouldn't want to buy. We'd always be able to sell to a Japanese investor. And as you've mentioned before, it all comes down to those just, you know, market fundamentals. You've, you know, if you're going to be buying in the, the middle of nowhere, it's going to be harder to sell whether and compared to being in a more desirable place with good employment. You know, it seems the world over. It's, it's well, with investment properties, they're really judged strictly on the yield that they can generate. So if there's been a tenant in there for a good long time and there haven't been huge gaps between tenants and the property is still yielding, and even if it's very suburban or in a rural area, but with, you know, reasonably good industry or population trends and um, it would still be easy to sell but um, if you're selling it um, vacant or if you're selling something that's too old and needs major innovation then they'll obviously whoever buys it will want to you know seriously discount the price yes well i i see there is a a newsletter going around that people can subscribe to i won't mention what it's called but basically highlighting how you can get some very low-cost uh, property properties in Japan. Oh, Cheap uh, Houses Japan, yeah. We're, um, yeah. we're in partnership with them, actually. They okay. refer quite a few clients to us. Um, but yes. I would say that those are usually geared towards people who are looking for a property for their own personal use. Mm. Um, and once they contact us, if they start asking us if we can buy this property and turn it into an investment, then we have to... Um, Give them a bit of a sh cold shower and let them know that that's not going to be a viable investment property. Um, but sometimes you can get something for that same price. It's just not going to be a beautiful old house. It's going to be a tiny little condo in a good location that's going to be generating yield for that same level of investment. Yeah. Yeah, the, the cash cows, as as you call call them, uh, definitely. I, I guess my concern, uh, not so much a concern, but just a, a question. So say you know I I did. Buy, buy somewhere one of these you near know, 1k places after a 10 year period you, you want to sell it what sort of depreciation and capital value uh, can I expect I know like how long's a piece of string but well um, assuming that we've purchased with a bit of um, forward thinking so for example these days we wouldn't recommend to buy anything that's older than 30 years um, exactly for that reason, because as they get closer to 40 years, um, they tend to, um, I mean, it's not a, a tax depreciation factor. It's more a case of owners thinking about the maintenance costs that would be going up, potential mm -hmm. buyers. Um, so as long as we, as we focus on a basically good, stable location and the property that's not too old, we're assuming that the yield wouldn't have dropped too much by the time that you want to sell it. So you can basically assume that if yield has gone down by uh, 1%, whoever's buying it will want to discount the price so that it goes back up to that attractive yield percentage again. 
And here as well, I mean, the easiest course for us and our clients is always to sell to another client. So if the property is priced properly and is still generating a reasonable yield, you might be able to get the same price for it or even higher if that location is now particularly attractive. And for example, in Fukuoka, people are not expecting the eight or nine percent that they had um, seven, eight years ago. They're now expecting four or five percent. So it could be that you could actually be selling at a profit if the location is, has become increasingly popular. Otherwise, probably around the same price, maybe slightly lower, um, say 10, 20% lower. Um, but hopefully by that time, your rental income, assuming that, again, you're maybe selling seven, eight, nine years down the track, um, your rental income has probably already given you more than 50 or 60% of the property, of the capital back. So you're still very well in the green, even if it sells at a slight discount. Um, I'd no. say on average, most of our clients resell at roughly about the same price that they've purchased at. Um, fundamentals in most cities in Japan haven't changed significantly. Um, people who have sold in hotspots like um, Fukuoka or if for some reason they get a good deal in central uh, Tokyo, Osaka, have sold at a profit. Uh, everybody else, just about the same amount. The people who have lost on capital is people who for some reason have had to... Um, reduce the rent because there was, you know, severe competition from new buildings in the area or the um, the population trends for that particular city have changed and rent is just now lower there. Or people who are selling um, vacant properties or properties that they haven't renovated after the last tenant moved out for whatever reason, because they don't want to put more capital into it or because they're just fire selling for any reason. It's rare, but it does happen sometimes. And um, those might have lost anywhere between five to at worst 20 percent i'd say yeah it's a, it's obviously just a, a very different uh situation to what definitely currently australia uh, yeah but i mean look the cash flow here is nowhere i mean australia is nowhere near the cash flow that you can get here i mean i, I remember um when we liquidated our last Australian holdings, um, they were making on a good year, maybe three and a half, four percent in, in rental income. Um, and depending on the period, like, like we liquidated it in, I think, 2013. And between 2009 to 2013, prices were just not going anywhere because it was a global financial crisis. Um, COVID might create similar dynamics. I and mean, so it really depends on the on the time at which you're liquidating. Um, here you can pretty much count on the fact that you're not going to see any capital growth, but the, the, the sort of, not guaranteed, but the far more stable rental income is always there. Well, and, and as you uh, quite eloquently have put before, there's not going to be any drug labs or wild parties and things. It's very much a hassle-free investment. <laughs> Australia is not that bad in that regard. It's not the U.S. But, uh, no. I mean, look, payment payment problems do exist in Australia more than they do here. And um, kicking a tenant out, when, while, again, it's not as difficult as it is in the States, um, it's a lot easier here. You just, yeah, you send them a letter and they're, they're gone, basically. And they also stay longer. I think your average Australian tenant tends to stay in place maybe two, three years. Um, here, even the singles stay in place somewhere between four to five years on average. Families can stay in the same place 
families or let's say middle-aged females for example would stay in the same place for even 20 years so it's it's basically a lot more passive investment wise oh yeah and it's as i said i think if you know people are open uh, to the japanese industry and and, and realizing how it works there's a, there's a lot of very very positive things yeah. Uh, detractors in let's say other western countries it depends uh, on the rest of your portfolio too like you've mentioned you've got properties in Brisbane that are probably very different fundamentally than what you've got here in Japan so there's a bit of a diversity play to be made there as well have some of it more speculative some of it more safe and stable um, spreading them out geographically obviously socioeconomically and so forth yes well like Brisbane's just gone crazy so I've, I've had a, an apartment in uh, basically in a city inner city Brisbane and yeah it's just appreciated unbelievably and it's just become yeah almost uh, well it, you wouldn't be making anything renting it out it's just the, the rental yield is it's nothing compared to the, the property value so mm. it's not worth holding unless you're you're living in it basically but but you've purchased it cheaper I assume yeah yes yeah. yes so, well I, I've actually have I've liquidated that now. I've, I've sold that. So okay. I'm, uh, yeah, was happy to do that. I, I got in and out at the, at the right times, which is pretty rare. But I mean, the other thing to be said for Japan is that if your property was anything similar to what we liquidated in Australia for that price, you can probably buy five or six of them here. Um, which again offers a lot more diversity. I mean, obviously multiple income streams is better than having a single one. Uh, and again, you spread them out geographically, socioeconomically. I mean, just the fact that you can buy a building, a multi-unit building in Japan for the price of a condo unit in Australia, is, uh, that was what convinced me from the get-go to move my, my funds here. Yes, yes, well, you really are the landlord in that situation, aren't you? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, it's, it's, it's very interesting. But yeah, I, I guess um, for... A, a local Japanese person, just a regular person, that sort of seems a bridge too far. They don't understand it. They think it's a huge risk. Whereas, well, you know, somebody, I'm, somebody from your wife's generation, most of them are like that. But the um, the Ojichan, Ubachan, the elderly folks who have lived through a few boom and bust cycles are very savvy investors here. That's most of the people that we buy our properties from um, are either real estate companies that do that for a living or. 70 80 year olds who um you know they're getting there and their children are similar again to to the younger generation the children are no we don't want the property just just give us cash so they sell you know and we're, we're happy with that we're buying um but they're there and you know japan has more and more of these elderly people as the population ages so th there's there's good competition here to be had and there's savvy people but not the younger generations yet no no they don't seem to have uh sort of Come, come on board. But I guess if you've been through World War II, uh, economic bubble bursting doesn't seem that scary anymore, right? No, no, not, not at all. We interrupt this broadcast. I always wanted to say this. We interrupt this broadcast to tell you about Tokyo Family Stays. They're a short-term rentals company in Tokyo, and they offer a home away from home experience, which is just perfect for remote working, quarantining, or if you just need summer quiet to hide away from the world. So they offer a variety of options for families, for corporate relocations, or simply if you're transitioning between homes in Tokyo. Now the properties are super comfortable, tastefully furnished, fully equipped with all amenities, and they accommodate up to 10 people. 
So really the only thing you'll need to bring with you is your toothbrush and maybe a change of clothes. They've got fast, unlimited wireless internet, dedicated workspaces, and fully equipped kitchens, and they're just a delight to stay in, a fantastic alternative to Japanese business hotels, which if you've ever stayed in one, you probably know they're tiny, they're noisy, fine for a night or two if you're on your own, but long-term or with a family, you'll probably feel you're in a jail cell very quickly. So if you want to give yourself a sense of space and freedom by renting a real home with comfortable Western beds, including all the necessities like baby bedding, children's toys, high chairs, you definitely want to reach out to Tokyo Family Stays. They've been at it for over a decade. They're a fully licensed minpaku or short-term stay operator. And as a special bonus for our viewers and listeners, they're also throwing in a breakfast basket upon arrival for anyone who books and mentions the Japan Real Estate Podcast or NTI. And not only for guests, if you're a property owner, you've got an investment property that you want to tweak for higher profits or a holiday home that you want rented out when not in use via short-term stays, drop them a line today, see how they can help you maximize your property's income. And again, as a special bonus to our viewers and listeners, they're also offering a free audit of your existing short-term stay listings without any obligation whatsoever. So feel free to reach out to them at tokyofamilystays.com, well worth your visit. And again, if you're in the market for a family home in or around the Tokyo metropolitan area, Emil's your man. Don't be shy to reach out to him as well at emil.gorgies, G-O-R-G-E-E-S, at tokyorealty.jp. Not at all. And, you know, having, having been going to and from Japan for over 20 years, uh, yeah, it's there's, there's lots of positives there, particularly from people who would be renting that you just don't get. Uh, overseas. Mm. So, um, what what about um, in terms of a, a personal property, like a, a home to live in? Um, see, I I can't sort of see the merits in coming over and paying six months of rent somewhere when I could be paying six months of mortgage. Uh, um, that's a, that's my my mentality. Well, I would say if you can get a mortgage, it's a no-brainer, right? So if you're, and I'm guessing your wife might be a bit happier signing off on a on a homeowner mortgage than she would with an investment property. So if you do have access to getting a Japanese mortgage, it's virtually a no-brainer, paying half a percent or 0.7% in uh, interest uh, for a home is, of course, you'd want to do that. Um, as to where, I guess it would depend on where and what sort of property you're looking at. So it might not make that much sense to buy something in Roppongi Towers, but if you're talking about Yokohama again, for example, or if you're talking about something a bit more suburban in Tokyo and Osaka, um, then um, they're not that expensive, especially if you're not buying brand new. Yeah. They can yeah, be well, very affordable, again, compared to Australia, for sure. It, it would be, be Kyoto. Uh, in Kyoto, okay. Kyoto, with, central Kyoto can be not cheap. But if you're happy with suburban, it's um, it's doable, yeah. Yeah, no, the, 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 bur the burbs are fine. But yeah, that, that's that's sort of, yeah, to me, that's, that's a no-brainer. You, you just have to do the, the basic calculations and it, it's no-brainer. But again, it's just that sort of that mentality that oh no we we don't buy we rent and it's it's sort of changing that 
that way of thinking. That's very old school. I mean, most Japanese younger couples and families that I know are very happy to take out a mortgage and buy a home to live in as soon as they can afford it. Yeah, from she's from a very uh, traditional family. Okay. Uh, and uh, just, I guess, yeah, just a di different different way of, of thinking. And I think it's more about, oh, well, you know, we, we sign up for for a mortgage that we're, we're sticking here until it's all, all paid off in, in 30 years sort of time. Whereas I'm like, well, we could just buy it in cash and then stay a couple of years. Or move out and rent it out. That's doable too. <laughs> yeah. exactly, exactly, exactly. Um, and yeah, that, that's, I guess that's the sort of real difficult thing with Japan as opposed to Australia because, you know, we can build that equity and, and then duplicate and get another property and another, but it just can't be done no. from my understanding. No, you can resell or rent it out. That's pretty much the only strategies available for exit. Mm. Or again, tear it down and do something else with the land plot. Yes, and, and yeah, you, you can't, can't use that at all to purchase another property. No, no. And I mean, you will, you will be able, like basically the banks limit your borrowing capacity depending on how much you've already borrowed. You mm -hmm. will be able to let them know that you're planning to move to another property and resell this one. So they, they'll kind of, they'll reset your borrowing capacity and let you borrow again for the new home. But then within about six months, they'll want to see that you've actually sold this one um, so that you can, uh, so that your borrowing capacity is real. And, so, but but it's not really drawing on equity. It's just them letting you roll over the loan to a different property as an mm. owner occupier. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Because there, there's obviously there's there's very sort of strict limits on on what you can borrow. And I guess to your earlier point, at this stage, in terms of loans, it it wouldn't be me. It would have to be my wife, and I'm basically just coming to the party with the cash. So, yep. Um, so I guess you know I, I could front half the cash, and she could get a get a loan for the the rest. Really, that's probably the the easiest. If she's got a stable income history, then yeah, definitely. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So and basically just keep keeping me out of out of the process. Yeah, that would be. I mean, from from the perspective of the banks, her as uh, has she been living here for long, or have you been living in Australia for a few years and just come back here? Uh, she's been back for about a year now. Um, that should be sufficient. And she's been working all of that year? Yes. So she, she should definitely be eligible for a loan, I would say. Mm. Yeah. Unless well, she's on, uh, is she a, a, a sideshine and actually salaried employee or is she a, a contractor? Salaried employee. Yeah. So she, she should be fine. She should be able to borrow seven, up to seven times her annual salary. Yeah, so, well, of course, she's obviously in Australia. We, uh, we were in Australia for a couple of years, but, you know, before that, in, in Japan as well. Um, okay. Well, I guess uh, parking lots is, is the other thing. Like, I know um, we've mentioned about, you know, having a, a building gets older, knocking it down, putting it into a parking lot. I, I did listen to your, uh, your podcast, and I think read an article that you've written uh, for an Asian newspaper about it, and there was a, was a company that you linked to. Um, yeah, is is it is it viable just to try and buy a 
buy an existing car park as opposed to going through, I guess, the more difficult steps of having a, having a land or a building, knocking it down, building it, all that sort of thing. Is, is there? I mean, it's more involved setting it up from scratch, but it will be cheaper in the long term. Um, if you buy an existing one, then again, it's going to be priced based on the income that it generates. Yeah. Whereas if you buy a land plot, it's, you know, whoever is selling it to you is assuming that you're going to have construction costs, so they're priced accordingly. Um, but with parking lots, if you want it to even come close to what you can get from standard residential or commercial investment, um, you want to get something fairly central and you want to put at least a two-story um, structure, parking structure on it. Otherwise, mm -hmm. you're scratching the two and a half, maybe three percent again, which you could get even in central Tokyo with a good property. So, yeah, and most most people who don't do that, people who just buy um, a land plot and just single level parking set up on it, are usually just land banking. They're just waiting for value to potentially go up and then flip the property again, uh, flip the land again. Um, mm -hmm. It's not really a cash flow oriented initiative unless you're buying, again, fairly central, reasonably close to a, a station or, or a very popular residential area and um, two floor structure with a boom gate. And that's when you can start making um, reasonable, reasonable yields on it. Yeah, the, uh, the setup cost for that would be quite substantial, I'd imagine. Not it's usually a concrete structure if you want to be running cars up and down it. So yeah, it's not going to be as cheap as building it. Um, it could get away with maybe about the price of a fancy house. So maybe three, three hundred thousand for construction. But then if you bought fairly good location land, there's going to be at least three, four hundred on top of that for the land, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, so you could be getting to a million pretty quickly, basically. <clears throat> Close to it, I'd say, yeah. Somewhere between seven, seven to nine, maybe, yeah. Mm. Unless you happen to hit a spot that's really hasn't risen up in value, but you definitely know that the fundamentals of the area means that it will. So there will, you're estimating that there will be a demand for parking services in this area, but it hasn't gone to that level quite yet. Um, but those spots, especially in Japan, where, I mean, locations are pretty stable industry and population-wise, um, mm -hmm. that's that's hard to pick. I wouldn't be able to tell you um, with any certainty that I know of any spots like that at the moment. When it happens, it's usually a surprise to most people. Of course, of course. I mean, we might see, like, for example, I could tell you in Fukuoka City, which is still growing in size and value, then I can tell you that there are a few suburbs where you might be able to buy something cheap and that they could potentially, because if I see urban rejuvenation one station up the track, then I know that the next station is probably going to be next in line. But as to mm -hmm. how quickly that might happen, um, that's a bit of a mystery to me as well, even living here. So I can tell you that, yeah, next to this station is a good place to buy, but whether it's going to start yielding within two years or five years or seven years, I don't know. Well, that, that, that's, that's the gamble. Yeah. Okay. Um, is, there a, is there a recommended uh, number of properties in a portfolio? Like this, what, what's, what's good to manage? When does it become too difficult? Um, well, if you, 
or you or your wife or you or your company staff are going to be managing them on their own, then it's a matter of your personal bandwidth. How much, um, how much monthly decisions you can make, how much, mon how many monthly communication with property managers and asset managers you want to have. Mm -hmm. If you're dealing with a single point of contact, like if you're working with someone like us, for example, um, I'd say the more the merrier because it gives you more diversity, right? Mm -hmm. um, but I wouldn't buy bottom end properties just to get a higher amount of doors. Like I wouldn't focus my entire portfolio on 20, 30,000 yen tiny apartments in, in uh, secondary cities. Um, mm -hmm. I'd probably add a minimum. I mean, look, depends on your budget. If you can afford to, I would probably focus on as many small buildings as you can because again of the flexibility that inherent in them and the potential capital growth with a bigger land parcel. Um, otherwise, I would maybe go for as many individual units as you can, but try to go for something that's 50, 60,000 per unit and upwards. Uh, it just gives you better locations and better tenant profiles. Hmm. Yeah, it's... Uh... I think, you know, as you've mentioned before, the diversity is the key, you know, just diversifying against all sorts of things from market conditions to natural disasters. Yeah, uh, but the, I mean, there's a limit. Look, if we're happy to service anyone. So we get a lot of people who just, you know, they've saved 20, 30, 40,000 US and they just want to have some kind of real estate property that's generating some kind of income anywhere. So we're mm -hmm. happy to help them. But if you've if you've got the budget to work wider than that, I wouldn't focus on the bottom end of the market if you can, because um, getting a hundred doors, but they're all low profile tenants in out of the way locations. I mean, they'll generate income until they don't, and then they'll sort of die off. Um, I'd much rather focus on, on slightly lower number of properties, but slightly higher um, profile properties and higher profile tenants. If you can, if you can't, then yeah, we'll, we'll, again, we'll, we'll cater to whatever people ask for. It's still, I mean, look, at least in Japan, you can invest 20, 30, 40,000 and actually get some rental income. It's not really feasible unless you're buying into ghetto properties in the US and then that's not really stable income in any sense of the word. But at least here, it's an option for people who want it. But if you can, I'd aim for higher, yeah. Mm, absolutely. I don't know, that's, that's, that's all very interesting. Um, but yeah, so I, I guess basically the big takeaway from what you're saying is if, if I wanted to get into the property market today, I've basically got to, got to come with the cash. Yep. Um, and there are no sort of crea creative creative strategies um, that are going to be worth worthwhile. Um, well, it depends on interest rates in Australia. What's the rates on a personal loan or a business credit line in Australia at the moment? Are the interest rates attractive? Uh, I don't know them off the top of my head at, at this at this particular point in time, but I imagine they're slightly down, but probably yeah, too too high considering what the market conditions are. Um, uh, definitely not as not as good as Japan. We might be personal loan might be five. 5.7% or something like that. Well, then you you do run the slight risk of um, going into negative gearing territory um, if and when you get some vacancies or maintenance or something unexpected happens, you could, even if we aim from the, I mean, at the time of purchase, we might be able to get to 6-7%, mm. um, but that's 6-7% before tax. 
and that's that's going to drop whenever something happens, right? So uh, unless Japan takes a huge economic leap forward and salaries go up and rents go up, which we haven't seen in the last decade, um, then we can safely assume that yield will go down over time rather than up. And then you're a little bit too close to the interest rate for comfort, I'd say. Yes, I agree. Um, well, speaking of salaries going up, obviously in the news recently, uh, Japanese prime ministers suggesting to companies that they pay more? Or you, you yeah, Abe-san's Abe been suggesting that to companies since he came into office in 2012. I've yet to see it happen, and he had a lot more clout than Kishida does. <laughs> well, he's even got a, yeah, Abe-nomics named after him. So. Yeah, I mean, that was a lot of feel-good stuff for a good few years, but, um, I mean, look, Japan's doing really well considering the population trend here, right? Like, to have any sort of economic growth when your workforce is shrinking is phenomenal. Um, but I don't see any huge, I mean, look, when policies change and I, I mean, companies, I don't think companies will be paying higher salaries um, unless they get out anything out of it. And they're as conservative as, as, um, as your typical Japanese spouse, right? So the only really, the only real way forward that, I, I mean, this is all, this is all couch commentating, yeah, but the only real way forward that I can see is um, either wide opening of the immigration gates, like um, Hiroshi Mikitani from Rakuten has been giving them a lot of a lot of um, hard talk about that, um, or a huge shift in uh, mind frames towards females, which will actually encourage them to have a career and work more and have more babies, and you know, basically. Japanese women are kind of voting with their wombs to not have too many babies because they're not interested in being a house slave. Um, mm. until, they, until they change the basic fundamentals to enable them to be happier about having babies, then I don't think the population trend. So it's either immigration or birth rates, and I don't see any major policies that are going to be improving any of those two. Um, and as long as that doesn't improve, the economy is going to keep stagnant right it's not gonna it's it's growing to some degree when things are doing well but it's not any significant growth so salaries don't grow rents don't go up and then um, we can assume that investment yields will keep going down as as buildings age yeah so they might be higher at the time of purchase but they're not going to go higher because you can raise the rent they're going to go lower because maintenance is going to go is going to become more expensive which yeah. is again why people sell them after seven eight years or one yeah, so uh, I guess an example of, of yield dropping. So let's say you are getting seven percent on year one. By year ten, what are we what are we looking at down below below five percent? Uh, probably about that. So five and a half ish, five percent after about ten years. Um, our clients tend to sell when it drops below five percent most of the time. Um, and that's again net pre-tax so your first few properties are going to be probably tax-free if they're smaller condo units or at least tax-free for the first three or five years depending on whether you buy them as an individual or as a business um, but after that once you start paying tax so it depends on your tax liabilities in Japan if you're living in Japan and you've got other income in Japan um, you could be paying slightly higher income tax I mean it's not as high as in Australia nor near that um, but you could 
I mean, I'd probably safe to assume that once you start paying income tax, maybe about 1% lower, the yield goes maybe 1% lower, 1.5%, depending on how much you're making here. Yeah, well, I see on your, on your website, there's uh, a lot of information about tax. And it's, uh, it's it, uh, on first read, it's a bit of a minefield, um, sort of nav navigating it all. That's what accountants are for. I wouldn't even <laughs> presume to be able to work that yeah. out on my own. Why didn't I do accounting at university? Nah, that, uh, it takes a certain mindset to be an accountant. <laughs> I, it's like a computer programmer. I admire the people who can actually do that. Um, but th there are good accountants in Japan, even bilingual, so that, that's not a huge issue and they're quite affordable. Yeah, so because accountants in Australia, they're very expensive at the moment. Mm. Navigating with all the coronavirus payments, all that sort of thing, I'm sure it's almost saved the industry. Our customers who have only property income in Japan, so people um, like you while you're remote and not making any income here, so people who only have property income in Japan, um, the accountant that they usually work with charges, I think, 7,500 yen per annum per property. And to do wow. the tax returns, or maybe a hundred if it's a couple. So a hundred bucks if it's a couple um, per property. So considering that that's less than half a month of rent, uh, it's very much worth um, putting it in, I think. Well, seeing in Australia, you mentioned that it's a business tax return and they put $5,000 on it before they get started. So. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's, uh, well, that's, that's another, another positive for everyone listening. Cheap accounting rates, wow. Cost of living uh, being lower is always a good thing, if you're living here. Yeah, Ab absolutely, absolutely. Um, I think I think that was all my questions. Uh, yeah. um, so, oh, okay, uh, is it... Go for it. Do you think it's more advantageous uh, to have the property portfolio as a company or as an individual? In Japan. If you're going to be purchasing assets, th this is just a rough, rough figure, yep. but if you're going to be purchasing yep. assets that are over half a million US or maybe closer to 700,000 US, and that's when tax advantages for companies become a thing. Otherwise, to set up a local branch and upkeep it every year, so you need to pay accounting and bookkeeping fees every year, and that's going to be at a minimum about $3,000. Uh, if you mm -hmm. include the minimum corporate tax, so even if you're not having any official taxable income, you still need to pay a minimum corporate tax of at least somewhere between 700 to 1,000 US. Mm -hmm. um, so that doesn't make sense unless your annual income is at least 30,000, 40,000. I mean, you don't want to pay more than 10% of your costs in accounting and bookkeeping and taxes. No. Um, and that sort of income would be generated from properties that are at least half a million US and upwards. So mm. probably more, probably higher than that, but there are some other, I mean, you can claim more deductions as a company than you would as an individual. So even if you're not making quite as much, uh, even if you're not making the 30, 40,000 US, maybe you bought a small building for let's say half a million US and it's generating, let's say something like uh, 25,000 per annum it might make sense because there's more that you can claim as deductions. Um, mm -hmm. But below half a million worth of assets, I'd say no. 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 
unless again unless you've already got a company in japan you're already paying company upkeep costs and there are other factors coming into play and other expenses that you want to offset against then that's something that an accountant can definitely advise on but if the company is only being set up for the purpose of property investment i'd say that's that's the bottom limit yes okay that's that's interesting because i well i know in australia it's uh, you basically got to say what your, your company's primary uh, business stream is and if you're trying to sort of say oh you know we've got some, got some property and you know we have a restaurant and we we do these sorts of things it gets it gets very difficult and I don't think the government likes that too much. They so don't they don't care about that here. I don't care about that. Yeah. Lovely. Single holding company can do a do very a wide variety of business, yeah. Great. Um, last question, sorry. Um, what about commercial property? Um it that's the only place where we can potentially raise the rents if the economy does well or if at least the local economy in that location does well and um, because um, you know an established business that's making a good income in a good location would want to stay there so they wouldn't mind paying more and yes. um, so those leases can be um, renegotiated on renewal but the other side of that same token is that when the economy doesn't do as well, commercial properties tend to be a lot more volatile and suffer more than residential properties. So no one's going to be, you know, there's not going to be massive layoffs and um, salary reductions in Japan. Somebody who's got a, you know, a reasonably stable job is probably going to be a residential tenant even when crisis hits. Um, but companies can and do relocate, downsize, go out of business. Um, so the rents can fluctuate um, as much downwards as they can uh, be raised. So I would say if you're just starting out an investment portfolio, it would be a good idea to have, depending on your risk appetite, let's say about at least half of it stable residential um, probably slightly lower yield, good locations sort of thing, then have another maybe 20% more adventurous residential, maybe smaller cities with potentially higher yields, and the rest of it, 20-30% maybe in commercial. Um, and you, I mean, obviously play with those borderlines as befitting your risk appetite, but I wouldn't, um, ha having said that, there are you know very big investors out there that specialize and only invest in commercial, right? Mm. Um, so, I mean, they're, they're safe and stable in commercial as well. If you buy a central Tokyo office building for a few million bucks, then yields are very low, but you're always going to have tenants who are looking to rent there. Um, so similar dynamics. But if you're talking about your typical commercial at, at you and my level, so small shops, maybe a small building where units can be used for both residential or office purposes, um, a small office building or a small shopping center at that level I would say it can be more volatile so I would probably aim towards allocating a smaller part of your portfolio to those unless you're the very adventurous type obviously uh, I, I, I'm, I'm an economic conservative but from time to time I have a higher risk appetite so, yeah, uh, that's why we have 10, 20%, same, same here. 10, 20% of our portfolio does go towards these um, higher risk uh, adventures. But I, I'm very similar to, I, I like to see a steady paycheck and then get adventurous with the bonuses. Yes, yes, ab ab absolutely. Because I guess, the, as you said, 
with residential, times are bad, they, they're going to stay there. But In Japan, for sure. In, in Japan, yeah. but with the commercial things turn sour, you may be looking for a long looking at a long period of a, an unoccupied asset which is just costing you money and not generating you any. Yes, and also bear in mind that for a Japanese company to declare bankruptcy um, has a lot less stigma than for a Japanese individual to declare bankruptcy. They're going to do their best to pay their debts, whereas a company going out of business will, even in Japan, will happily declare bankruptcy to avoid debt. So that's still an, not as much of an issue as it is in other countries, but still an issue. <laughs> oh, yeah. And because I, well, in Australia, there's obviously been a, a huge change in the last 24 months with commercial property because it was something that I was becoming very interested in and now everyone's working from home. Like it's it's just become such a such a common thing is these, you know, empty, em, empty uh, central cities, just, you know, people working from home. And that trend is very much, I mean, it exists here since COVID struck, but it's very, I mean, the vast majority of the population here are blue collar workers or salespeople that still need to get into the city. So they might move to the suburbs as opposed to um, the central city, but moving out to the countryside to work from home is something that only really the higher echelon can afford here. Still, still exists in the, the land of fiction, I guess. Yeah. It is a bit of a trend, like it's definitely happening. And the other thing is that a lot of, I mean, companies that can afford to have um, sort of liquidated a central city big headquarter office and instead of that opted for a few um, satellite offices in, in the suburbs to make it easier for people who do want to be closer to home now to, to commute into smaller offices uh, on the once or twice a week that they do that now. So when they can, they have definitely relegated people to working from home. And that's also created a bit of a higher demand for um, larger floor prints in the house because you suddenly need an office space. Um, but central city commercial properties are not going anywhere. Retail is suffering. So um, shops are definitely feeling the pain. There's a huge shift to e-commerce here. Um, but offices are very much still a thing. They're not going anywhere. Yeah, it's, well, I hope it doesn't go anywhere. It's, you know, that's sort of a, a bit of a charm Japan, well, particularly you know the, the shopping streets and all those sorts of things. Yeah, I hope it doesn't go too too online. Yeah. Well, I, I I could keep talking for hours about all this, but you're you're a busy man, so. Uh, I do need I'll... eventually to move yeah ahead with the rest of the day, but uh, it's it's been a real pleasure. I enjoy these deeper uh, deeper dives, and um, well, so I guess j just to summarize, I think if I understand correctly, where you are now is. A, you need to have a few conversations with your spouse and see where she stands on the loan situations, both for investment loans and uh, homeowner loans. And then once that's done and you have a better idea of how much capital you're going to be putting in and when, you need, you'll probably need to decide um, when to pull the trigger, right? Um, whether it's going to be only once you qualify for a loan or if you want to start with cash and then... Uh, sort of convert to a, a mixed loan cash structure, right? Yeah, so uh, I guess, yeah, I, I can come right now with the cash and, and buy things, but again, being you know, economically conservative, um, I would prefer to only use some of that cash and then sort of bridge it with a loan, yeah. uh, bridge the rest with a loan. Uh, that's, I think, the sort of 
smarter thing to do for my situation at this point in time. Well, only, only if you can put that cash somewhere that's actually making any cash in the interim, right? Well, fortunately, uh, the, you know, the share market hasn't been doing too poorly in, in recent times. Okay. So. Yeah, so as long as you've got places to park it until that time, that's definitely the, the wisest course, I think. It is, but yeah, you know, if I'm, I'm looking at you know, re relocating, hopefully hopefully next month and, you know, being there long term and, and I just think it makes sense to, you know, you know, but banks are just such a terrible place to keep your money. <laughs> That's it's not a, even an option. But look, I would say if you're going to be using your, um, going to be using your relationship credits and applying any sort of pressure, I would definitely aim for the home loan first because that's really a no-brainer. I mean, definitely there's a case to be made to your wife that you're absolutely throwing money away every month especially with moving costs in japan if you're renting and just explain to her that the fact that the mortgage is there for 30 years a it doesn't mean that you actually have to keep living there you can definitely rent it out or resell it if you want to move out and even if you then just approach the bank and just change that loan over to an investment loan if they'll allow it at that point or even just pay it off. I mean, you've obviously got the cash to pay it off. I'm guessing you're not going to buying you're not going to be buying a, a heart of Tokyo penthouse apartment for like four million bucks, something a bit more reasonable. So as long as you've got the cash to pay it off, then you're completely free to leave at any time. And it just doesn't make sense, even if it's for ten years, to throw away that kind of money every month. Oh, absolutely, and because we haven't even mentioned all of these other upfront costs with the. Uh Renting in Japan, the key money, guarantee money, all this yeah. sort of thing, which can be what up to seven months rent just down the toilet for for no reason. Yeah. So especially it, in it, Kyoto, it definitely can be like that. Yeah. Yeah, it's de de definitely a no-brainer. So. Yeah, so I would apply pressure there first, and just and uh, um, start the investment conversation maybe a little bit later. Yes. Yes. I. Uh, might, might have to keep a few of those thoughts to myself for the time being. <laughs> <laughs> well, so thank you, thank you very much, my friend, and so lovely to, to speak to a, a, a kindred soul about all of this and, and someone here. who re really, uh, really loves and appreciates the whole industry. Same here. Pleasure speaking with you. We'll be, be in touch soon. Thank you. Thank you. All right, so as advertised, nice, long, deep dive into a bunch of property investment topics. Hope you found some value in the conversation. Now, before we go, we're also, as always, going to tell you and also link to our other sponsor's website. That's Hiroshi Shimizu, immigration lawyer and administrative scrivener. If you're thinking about moving here on a more permanent basis, or you're already in Japan on some sort of a temporary visa, and you want to switch to a longer term or permanent one, or if you're considering setting up a local company or a branch office of a foreign company and you've got any sort of business or visa related inquiries, or even if you just want to find out what your options are on any of these topics, feel free to contact Hiroshi Shimizu. You can find him at japanimmigrationexperts.com and he can help you set up a company, apply for any kind of visa, or just provide you with the best advice and extremely affordable consultation related to these topics. And he's already done that for many of our listeners. So feel free to reach out to him. Again, that's japanimmigrationexperts.com and you'll be well on your way. And that's it from us for today, folks. Hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Japan Real Estate Podcast. Do share it with your networks and please let us know what you think. So leave us a short rating or review 
on the iTunes store, on Spotify, or just drop us a line in the comment section of wherever you might have found this episode. We love hearing from you. Hope to have you with us again next time. And until then, have a great day or night ahead. 